I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast. My name is Stu Whiffin, it's another week, therefore it's another episode. And today's episode, I sat down with Michael Smiley and it was a glorious chat. You're in for such a treat with this. Uh, Michael's story is fascinating, uh, he's such a great talker and, uh, and yeah, the, the, the chat pinballs all over the place. You're going to love it. Uh, and obviously we talk about some amazing records. Um, before we get on with it, just a quick shout out to... Um, Scribius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, big thanks uh, to 76 for producing this podcast. Um, and also, if this is your first time listening to Off the Beaten Track, um, we also speak in this podcast about some mutual friends like Pip, like Rich Wilson, like Johnny Harris, um, all of which have um, been on previous episodes. So why not, um, at the end of this, go and have a, a rummage in the archives and see if there's anything over there that tickles your fancy because there's over 150 episodes with um, some amazing actors, musicians, comedians, producers, DJs. So go and um, go and have a rummage. Um, and also, if that's uh, not enough, then I also have a Patreon page where you can support the podcast. Um, each week, I'll put, alone, uh, put up standalone episodes on the Patreon page so you can go and uh, get more content there, there's over a hundred odd radio shows and mixtapes and podcasts over there as well. So uh, yeah, go and get stuck in, and you can find out about all of this at offthebeatentrackpodcast.com. Right back to business. Um, please enjoy Off the Beat and Track Podcast with the wonderful Michael Smiley. I've got an announcement. Save our souls clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? they're our official sponsor yeah that's right go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale you're going to love it so they've decided they want to be our sponsor which is amazing and what i have to do is i have to tell you about why they're amazing so here's a little bit of blurb so they've only been going a year and they're based in south end on sea just up the road from me they put the company together based on a a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. 
So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beaten Track Podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beaten Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me stew with him. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast. Sitting opposite me today via the means of Zoom is Michael Smiley. Hello. How you doing? You all right? I'm good, thank you. We've uh, we've already had a natter before we've pressed record, and uh, and there's uh, yeah, there's been some some Essex chat, um, which is uh, which always interests me. I'm sure we'll pick up on that when uh, we we talk about um, rave culture, hopefully uh, a little later. Um, before I get on to the, uh, the the track list, Michael, just interested to know how you've you've coped as a as a family man and as a creative um in the in the last sort of you know two or three months how have you found it um i found it really strange at the start i felt like you know i'm in the house with my wife and uh, my 14 year old son and my nine-year-old daughter and we're we're very front foot as a family you know what i mean we're, we're engaged we engage and um at the start of my, i gotta admit i found it being told what to do by the powers to be, um, I, I struggled with that, you know, and and that went inward. Where all of a sudden I was, I, I was trying to control everything in the house. So it was like I was going, "Why are you not picking that up? That should be tidied up." Going, and I was doing lots of pointing the finger and and giving missives, you know. And and then I stopped and went, "Hold on a minute! It's like I'm a screw in an open prison, you know. <laughs> uh, we need to be getting on with each other here." So. Everybody find their way, you know, and we're blessed to have enough rooms that the people can retire to a different room. So we've done a bit of that. And then I got a bit sort of, um, I got a bit like I wanted to get fitter. I think a lot of people did that, you know. And I'm a keen cyclist and it, it, I wasn't as as much on the bike as I wanted to over the past couple of years. And I got that middle-aged man spread and I was getting a bit, you know, all of a sudden, you're because you're in the house. All you're doing is looking at yourself or looking at what's going on around you. So I was going, "Oh my God, look at the state of me!" So I've got like six bicycles, and I bought a um, an indoor um, e trainer. It was like a roller thing. You put the bike on these rollers, and I bought one of those and started getting into learning how to do the roller because it's quite dodgy, you know. If you you can't really slow down on it, you know, you got to keep a cadence going, and that got me back into cycling again. So when, then, when you were allowed out for as it got more lenient you were allowed out a bit more so I'd go out on the bike and then going round and seeing this post-apocalyptic Soho and the West End find that fascinating Um, so I think at the start it was all fascinating and then it became really boring and I could feel you know I started writing I've got um, I've got a couple of of my own little projects on the go I'm writing a play and I'm writing a film and so I just started editing that and rewriting that and then I've only really stopped working on it recently because I thought I'm just editing for the sake of it now so I'm just I yeah. might just whittle it down in the end nub 
you know what I mean? You know, when you get you, you really get into sharpening pencils, and before you yeah, go, yeah. you know, you got no fucking pencil <laughs> yet. Um, so I've stepped back from that, and there's a few jobs coming through over the past week or so, which is now giving me a sense of maybe um, maybe I could still do this job. I think the longer you're away from acting, if you start thinking, I'm not be able to do it again. Well, how did you do that? How did you pretend to be somebody else? And it's a bit like when. You know, we were talking about uh, mutual friends like Rich Wilson, for example, who's a stand-up. And, you know, when I see my friends talking about desperate to get back into stand-up again, it feels so far away from me, the idea of me getting up on stage in front of an audience. And yet I was a proper road warrior for over 20 years, you know. Um, I so spoke my to, heart um... goes out to them. My heart goes out to them, really, because it's if you're defined by... You, you know, you're, you're, the real passion of your life is standing in front of a, a room full of hot, sweaty room and full of people who are yeah. drinking and crammed together. And your job is to turn them into a joyous, you yeah. know, um, gathering. And that to be taken away from me. There's fuck all left, man. That yeah. must be really depressing, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's very strange times for, you know, the industry. So I, I, I run a, I run a, a, a live venue and, it's just sitting there with the doors locked. It's, uh, yeah. you know, and it's just fingers crossed we're going to be able to get through this. But, you know, I don't know how long it's going to go on for. Everything else seems to be starting to reopen. But, you know, like you say, you're not seeing bands play live. You're not seeing clubs opening. You're not seeing, you know, stand-up anymore. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, scary times, but I'm sure... Yeah, it's, uh, there's a bit of stand-up coming back. There's sort of that, um, they're doing a lot of outside stuff now and beer gardens yeah. and drive-ins and, and they're trying their best. And, you know, I'm looking at it technically. I don't, I'm looking at a few of the photographs of some of the footage. And the thing about stand-up, the essence of stand-up is, you know, the geography or the, um, the physics of it is the room, the roof needs to be low. The audience need to be close. You need to be not too high. You need to be nearly at face level with them. Stuff like that that's, that's not there. There's a big gap between the audience. It's nearly like a, a festival a rock festival where there's crash barriers and there's about another 20 yards before the audience starts. And that's really hard because you're, you're sort of pitching your jokes like a baseball player, you know what I mean? You're just yeah. trying, you're trying to throw them into the audience rather than bang, 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 which yeah. is where the, that's where the joy is, you know, that's yeah. where the, the essence is. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to watch it. I wouldn't want to be doing it, but it's interesting to watch it. It was interesting you said that, you know, you know, have you forgotten how to act? Like, you know, uh, and because you haven't done it for so long. And it was the same when I speak to comedians on this podcast a lot. They, you know, I, I spoke to a comedian called Brett Goldstein and he was saying yeah. that, um, you know, he sees doing stand-up. He said, like, you know, if I'm out in America working, I will still do stand-up of an evening. And I'm like, why? For what, to, to, for money? And he was like, no, 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 just just to keep fit. Yeah. And and it said like, you know, it's like a like, it's like going to the gym. And he was like, yeah. you know, if I don't do it for a few weeks, it's you know, it's it's that much harder to come back to. And yeah, it's, really it becomes more, yeah, it becomes more frightening is what it becomes. Because then you're you're not in the flow, you know. Um like I can remember doing stand up and stand up talking to somebody at the side of the stage or in the dressing room and talking about a subject and we're just having a bit of banter. And then you can hear in the background, please welcome on stage. You go, I'll get back to you in a minute. And then you would go on, do your show, you know, do your 20 minutes, your half hour, whatever it was. And you would come back and go, like, and then you would pick up that conversation again. Yeah. And it was like you were, yeah, it was like you were a warrior, you know? Whereas if you, if you don't work for a week, you don't work for two weeks, you don't work for a month, 
you're waking up, you're not sleeping properly, your head's full of it all that day. Yeah. And then you've got the performance that night. Like when I was doing more acting and I was doing stand-up, there'd be gaps of maybe a month between gigs. And the first gig would be really crunchy. The second gig, I was just getting into my stride. The third gig was good. And then I wouldn't do it for another two weeks. And that was quite painful. That's a quite a pain. That's like going to the gym once a month and, yeah. and still exercising like you did when you went every day, you know. Those muscles start getting really creaky and then you can feel yourself being inauthentic and you can feel that sort of, oh, this is me doing my material now, you know. Yeah. And Whereas you're not, and the audience smell that off you. Yeah. You know, the audience, there's there's a, a, an invisible trust and bond that an audience doesn't even know they have with you. It's very fluid. You know, and if you do it right, then you can you can slip in like a like a card trick. You can slip in material and be a bit of banter, or you can slip a bit of banter into old material, or you can sh- shuffle stuff around. Then you're excited about that process that you're going through, yeah, yeah, and they're yeah, excited yeah. for you, and they don't quite know why. You know, so when people get that's why an audience gets really excited about really good improv. You know, yeah. you know, like Ross Noble, for example. Ross went through the roof because everybody when he's making it up as he goes yeah. along, you know, you know, and that's, you know, that's fantastic. Eddie Izzard is another prime example, you know, and I know when any time I come off paste, when we're having a laugh, if somebody in the audience says something and you run with it, people just go, oh, here we go. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And that feeling of, oh, the top of the roller coaster feeling <laughs> that you get as a, um, as a stand-up isn't there as an actor, you know. And the closest I've ever got to it as an actor is working with Ben Weekly, for example, because Ben will let you go off piste. And if you're working with another actor who's up for it and you're not trying to score points off each other, you're actually trying to, you know, let's make this a bit of fun, see if we can go with it, see if we can make this a bit better for us. Like with Kill List with um, Neil Masco, for example. You know, um, Neil was just brilliant. He's a brilliant actor anyway, but He's also a fantastic improviser, and he, he's obsessed with good comedy. He loves stand-up. So, you know, to meet an actor coming in the opposite direction, when I was sort of a stand-up getting into acting, and he was an actor who's interested in stand-up, when we met, yeah. um, we didn't know each other. Um, ben brought us together for Kill List. The, those sort of takes that didn't get used where we were we were just having banter with each other, you know. There's a brilliant one where um, it's not we were sitting in a car you know, on in Kill List, and his character's eating um, one of those ginsters pies type things, you know. And it never get used, but I'm, I'm sort of look at him and go, fucking hell, man. I mean, look at these cockneys just eat anything, don't, don't you? you see, you know, it's, it's like he's a bottom feeder. It's all whelks and eagles and it's all gizzards and stuff like that. He's, look at that. I don't even know what's in that pine. Look at you just eating it like it's your last meal. And he looked at me and he went, so what was that? Uh, bums and spuds. Bums and spuds. <laughs> Uh, we just that was the moment I went I'm in love with you <laughs> and that's it we get it we get each other just gorgeous oh brilliant I, I thought his character in um, the uh, the recent series at King Gary I thought Neil's character in that was yeah. absolutely fantastic what well, was hilarious in that Big Tom's great them two lived together for a while Big Tom Davis what a, what a great man and what a you know to see that big monster coming in and yeah. just stomping all over light in the kingdom. <laughs> I just think he's brilliant. I love him. I love everything about him. <laughs> right, should we talk music? Yeah, for so sure. 
For track one, Michael, I would like you to tell me the song with the greatest ever intro. The best ever intro for me, um, and this takes me back to being uh, when I was a bike messenger. Uh, uh, the, I used to have a, a compilation in the good old days of um, cassettes. I had my Walkman, and 4 o'clock Friday as a bike messenger was the start of you're going to catch up, you're going to earn your money now. Because all the people in the city, all the people in the West End, they want to clear their desks. So this is when you're, you know, you can poodle about all week, keeping yourself within your your um, your limit. You know, you would have a thing with, with a bike messenger where you would, if you'd done nine to six, five days a week, you got a bonus, you got a 10% bonus. If you don't earned over 250 quid, you got 20% on top of that. But you had to be in to do the hours to still be in the bonus, right? And you would be getting, you would just be poodling along, maybe doing, 30, 40 quid a day, and then four o'clock Friday would come, and it would just be an avalanche of jobs. And what the controller wants from you is for him to give you the job and you to go, Roger, Roger, and then you go POB, which is parcel on board, and then you go empty. That's what he wants off you, right? He doesn't want, what, sorry, what was that? What floor is it? Who was it? No, shut the fuck up. He's just got to clear this screen, you know? So I was one of the top boys, I'm proud to say, and you know, um, so you just go, you just throw you a, a, a volley of jobs, pick up here, WC1 and wait, West 1 and wait in the time when you get there, pick up an EC2, there's an EC4 in there also, there's an SE1, pick that up, drop it on the third floor, and when you're there, there's a, there's a multiple package coming into the West End, you just go, Roger, 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 and off you go. Right, as soon as I say Roger, right, and then I go, and I'm going POB, and I've got the parcels on board, he leaves me alone until he's got any more work for me, right? And I put on my four o'clock Friday compilation, which is called Cough Up Your Nuts, right? And because you're just balls out, it's balls out going through traffic, fucking like a nutter, you know? And the, that track, the, the first track on there has the best opening track of all time. And it's beaten around the bush by ACDC. And it's off the Highway to Hell to Bon Scott's last album before he died, you know? And um, you can hear Bon Scott all over back in Back to Black. It's really him, isn't it? But um, yeah. that last album, Highway to Hell, 1979, absolutely amazing album. Seen the tour when it came to Northern Ireland. Um, and that track, just that that opening opening riff, um, it just, just blows my mind. You want to hear it? Because it takes me back to those days. Yeah, I've got it here. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, went, I purposely made a little playlist of all the tracks that, that um, I'm playing for you today. Wonderful. So can, okay. So this is beating around the bush. Would you hear this? Imagine that, right? You put that on, you got your parcels on board, you're heading from the West End into the city, there's traffic all around you, you're not stopping for no motherfucker because this is how you're <laughs> going to earn your money. And you've got from four o'clock to six o'clock, you've got two hours, and you're just going to be non stop. I've got on my bike, on my back of my cycling jersey, I had a handful, like a big bag of um, chocolate 
coffee beans from the Algerian coffee shop in Old Compton Street to, and a banana. I'd eat the banana, I'd take a handful of coffee beans, and a bang on a double espresso, and we were off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited even telling you about it now. <laughs> I'm getting what flashbacks. Else? What else was on the mix, though? Oh, it would be that. It would be Trampled Underfoot by Led Zeppelin. There would be Overkill by Motorhead. There would be um, Going Back Home by Dr. Feel Good. So it was all balls out rock. All balls out rock and roll. And and that sort of like sort of, I loved sort of fast boogie rock and roll. I wasn't a heavy metal fan. It was always, there was always a groove under the stuff that I liked. It was always something that was danceable, you know, for me. And, uh, you know, that's why... um, like growing up, I grew up with Motown. I grew up with my sister was a really big into um, collecting the top ten. You know, every every track that came on into the top ten, she would buy it. So it was Motown, and then it was um, T Rex and David Bowie and Slade, and that sort of like stompy, you know, four yeah. to the floor really got me. So even when I got into rave music, I was always that stompy, slightly four yeah. to the floor, boom, boom, that you could dance to all night. It was yeah. quite tribal. I loved African music for the same reasons. You know, I loved that sort of like that stomp going through stuff. That you go, you know, you get that groove and you go, I can be here all night. I could do totally. this all fucking night, man. That, you know, I love that. Well, well, we'll, we'll pick up on, on your kind of uh, younger years and the music you was exposed to, um, I guess, as we come out of this, this next track. So for track two, uh, Michael, can I ask you the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you? The... The one that jumped, there was two, there was two really that jumped out. Okay. I was just going off the top of my head, you know, answering these questions, trying to be as honest as possible without trying to put too much thought into them, you know. So as a child, I remember hearing Alone Again Naturally by Gilbert O'Sullivan. Do you remember, do you know that track? I do, yeah. And it's basically about a guy who's so heartbroken, he's thinking about committing suicide. And I remember being a youngster hearing that. And I had, I used to have really bad bronchitis as a kid. So I'd be in my bedroom on my own for ages, like I'd be off school for ages, sort of propped up in the corner, um, trying to keep your, your sit upright so you, you couldn't lie back. And it was, you know, it was, and I think I blocked a lot of that out, but it was terrible times. You know, I missed a lot of a lot of primary school and stuff. But I remember hearing Alone Again Naturally and just being in bits, crying to it, you know. And that's jumped out at me. And I thought Gilbert O'Sullivan was a really, he's a, He's a weird, weird individual, but what like a, a genius in a lot of ways, you know what I mean? And he was contrary. If you look at those, like the footage of him playing alone again, naturally, um, this was a time of glam rock, right? So he's he shaved his head with his, he's had like a trendy haircut, you know, it's like long on top and short inside mm. and flat caps and tweed suits, dressing like he's in a demob suit from the 1940s, you know, mm. while all around him was people putting, you know, spangles on their faces. So um, he's quite a contrary character. I, I still like that album, uh, that track. Um, but the track that changed me, I think, from being like a, a wee status quo fan into, oh, my God, everything's changed, was summer 79. I started uh, over to Yorkshire, just out of my brother in Yorkshire, and he told me to go and get a job. And I got a job in Fox's Biscuits in Batley in West Yorkshire. And I fell in with this crowd of older scooter boys and girls they were like, you know, when that sort of mod had died and Northern Soul was still merging and it was, and all those mods sort of went into Scooter Boy world. 
yeah. you know, they, were, they were wearing sort of beer mats sewn under their jackets and they were like scooter rats and like yeah that's, they, that's... And they, they were chopping up their scooters and making uh, making them really minimalist with and really ugly looking you know yeah. um and that was the summer that a lot of like the two-tone really hit so um i just became embroiled with the the world of the the rude boy i just loved rude boys i wasn't really a mod it was more of a rude boy and I really, you know, it introduced me to ska and blue beat and you know early reggae, all that stuff. I just fucking adore. Which would probably be skinhead music with skinhead, yeah. not right wing skinhead, but skinhead from the, yeah. the original skinheads. Um, so we used to go to this. They used to smuggle me in because I was I, I was sixteen, but I looked about fuck. I looked like an amoeba, you know. Um, <laughs> they used to smuggle me in, and every, when I watched This Is England, right. The Thomas Turku's character, that was me in 1979, summer 1979. Brilliant. When I watched it, I went, oh, fuck, that's my, that's my story there, you know? You know, saving up and getting the Ben, the, the ben Sherman yeah. and getting the press trousers and getting the loafers with the, I had to have the tassel fringe, Coast. you know, and red socks and, you know, and your first Fred Perry, you know? You'd work on a Saturday morning, you could pay cash as overtime, and then they would take me up to Leeds and we'd buy all this gear. And we'd go to this club called the Turk's Head, which is in Dewsbury. And it was painted black. The, the, I think it was painted black on the inside, except for the bar area, which had cages across the front, and that was painted red. <laughs> you know, you could get a pint glass through the hole in the cage, you know. <laughs> and I walked into this dance floor, and it was pitch black, apart from like, like a, these mad little lights. And walked onto this, walked into this heat, and it blew my mind. It was like it wasn't a youth club disco. This was a fucking proper club, man. It was the first time ever in a proper club. And I remember the DJ was finishing playing "Punky Reggae Party" by Bob Marley, and then he brought this in. And I think this is up here with the best ever intros I've, I've ever heard as well. And it's "Rankin' Full Stop" by the Beat. Nice. Which is not you know that rim that played and I, I just fuck rah, and threw myself <laughs> in the middle of the dance floor and that was me I was a rude boy from then on I wasn't a status quo fan I was a rude boy because like like when I grew up you had to wear whatever you were you wore it you know if you were a rude boy you dressed like a rude boy if you were a skinhead or a, if you were a, a, a heavy metal you dressed like a heavy metal you couldn't be a heavy metal and a rude boy at the same time you had to be one it's, or the other you know it's so weird I think that that tribalism doesn't in the UK doesn't seem to be as apparent anymore. Maybe that's just because I'm a 47 year old man. I don't know, but it doesn't to me. It, you know, even through the, the you know the, the the years that followed that, you know, in in you know in in, in I guess you know what happened in Manchester and and then the you know the grunge thing and then like garage music. There was so many and, and rave culture. Obviously, there were so many really strong identities and yeah. sort of like youth cultures and 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 none more so than 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 the sort of two tone movement and 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 the skinhead movement as well. Um, for me. I don't see that as 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 apparently. But the only one that still is is completely consistent is bizarrely heavy metalers. Yeah, you know that they still wear their colours on their sleeve. And, yeah, uh, I think there's. I think like it's an age thing. You know, if you don't sound like Old Man River, but when I was younger, there wasn't that. There, whatever was new or whatever was exciting, you clung on to. You know, whatever was life changing. If you were 
post-pubescent, uh, you know what I mean? You know, all I had when I grown up for excitement was chasing girls, playing football, smoking, drinking cider, and music, you know, and music was the girlfriend that never let me down. It was the, you know, I, I was never getting dumped by music, you know. And, but also that thing of acquiring, going up and saving the money and buying your seven-inch single and then saving the money and buying your album and walking around within the bag for weeks on end, hoping somebody was going to go, what did you buy? <laughs> you know, or people coming around to your house to listen to your, your new record. So having my sitting room full of my mates or going out of my mate's house to listen to, you know, um, all of that was- I, I would put I would put my, uh, my my what I thought was like that week was my like coolest record. I was always put that at the front of yeah. my stack of records. So when people come round, it was like, yeah, have a look at that. That's me. Yeah. That is like. <laughs> or you would tell them and they would come round and your mum goes, "Somebody at the door for you," and you go and go, "Mate, go on, can we hear it?" And you go, "All right, come on, mum, can I play?" Yeah, all right. Don't be turned up too loud now. And they go into my man dad's stereogram in the, in the front room and nobody was allowed in and all these Herberts sitting around listening to Clash's first album, you know. Brilliant. So, yeah, that's the joy of it for me. So was there music on at home growing up? Yeah, very much. Um, very much from my mother. Uh, my dad was my dad was a big band fan. You know, my dad loved um, Joe Loss and he loved uh, Glenn Miller. You know, when I hear, both my parents are dead now, if I hear In the Mood by Glenn Miller, I just well up, you know. Um, and my mother was into, she loved Patsy Cline. And, you know, our house was just a typical Northern Irish house. It had rock and roll and country music. And my mama loved um, Ray Charles. She thought he was great. You know, she was just astounded by him. She just thought that, you know, he was so talented. I remember sending, listen to that, isn't that just brilliant? So talented, black and blind. <laughs> the idea that, you know, he had, bless him, he, he was born black, which is obviously, you know, in Mama's era was, you, you're a massive disadvantage in life, and which still today. And for the fact that he was blind, Southern States of America, and then to be this to be this this phenomenon. And Ray Charles is my favourite singer of all time, because it just, his voice blows me away. And also, it's my relationship with my mother. So Sunday mornings would very much be, we'd go to Mass, come back from Mass, my dad would go into the front room with the papers. My mom would go into the back room, and which was connected to the kitchen. And she would start um, cooking dinner and making a, um, a bacon sandwich and a cup of tea. And the radiogram would be on, and it should play um, Ray Charles. And so when I hear, I can't stop loving you, or take these chains from my heart, oh, they'd be played that Sunday morning at my mum and dad's. Or Patsy Cline, Three Cigarettes in an Ashtray. And my mother was a big singer. She, she would get up in the pub and sing, in, you know, in front of strangers didn't bother she was funny she was really quick um, she was very social you know um, and there was lots of parties around the house I grew up in a um, the first those housing estates of the early 60s I was born in a in a housing estate house uh, in the outskirts of Belfast Hollywood um, in, in a housing estate so all those people that um, moved into the housing estate had lived in these little back-to-back um shit little terraced houses in the centre of town and they get moved out, scrum clearance. But they brought that they brought that attitude to the housing estate so the doors were open, kids were running each other's houses. Friday nights they would go to the pubs, they would go to dances and then it would bring back fish and chips and carry out and the kids would go out of bed and there'd be a party and they'd be singing and dancing and I learnt, you know, the the entertain adults so I could stay up later, you know, I would sing and dance and do whatever was asked of me, you know. And I think I've got that sense of performance and love for music 
through the, from that era and from certainly from my mother, you know. She was from the markets in Belfast, so it was completely social, you know, that idea yeah. of being in, you know, in a very tight area. There was maybe 15 people in the house, but the house was only meant for maybe three people. So yeah. everybody was out on the street. So everybody was cheek by jowl, you know, and making their, as my mom used to say, we made our own fun in those days, son, you know. Yeah. And it's very true, you know, it's very true. So music was incredibly important. And then my sister was a massive um, collector of the top 10 and top 40 every week she would have. Is that an older sister? Yeah, I've got an older sister and an older brother. My older brother wasn't really into music that much. My sister was a big music fan. So I got a lot of my um, taste of music from her. You know, like David Boy Hunky Dory um, was is a seminal album for me growing up as well. Um, and all the Mark Boland stuff from Tyrannosaurus Rex and my people were fair and had some in their hair and all that one. Right the way through, Deb, 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 right through to Solid Gold Easy Action was, um, you know, Mark Boland was massive in our house as well. And Claire just bought all these singles every week. You know, whatever came into the top, top 20, she bought it. So she had like those little vinyl boxes just yeah. all over the house. And yeah, she was a, a massive, you know, um, music fashion, you know, she would dress, yeah. you know, basically rollers, anything that came through, any of the glams, that was all that, you know. So yeah, I was surrounded by that, you know. Hello, I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up. Get back. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. To the podcast. See you on the other side. Okay. Track three. 
the song reminds you of your time at school? Um, I'd say Heart of Glass by Blondie or The Crunch by the Ra Band. Wow. Do you remember The Crunch by the Ra Band? Yeah. That's another. Look, I've got to play. Come up, can I play The, the Crunch? Now, yeah. I like, I'd forgot about this, right? And I don't know. I was doing a film with um, me and Paul Kay. We're doing a film together, right? And we were driving one morning. It was way out in Wales in the countryside a couple of years ago. And you get picked up early in the morning. It was really low budget. So you're getting your, you know, you were getting a sandwich first thing in the morning type thing, you know, and a coffee. And we were hit. We were being driven to set. And me and him were just having banter because we're around about the same age. And, you know, he's North London lad. And, you know, and I was just having music banter, really, you know, football music banter. And we're talking about like what we're talking now. And he said, Do you remember the crunch? And I went, The crunch? What was that one? And he played it. We looked up, he played it to me. And he says, It reminds him of going to South End or Margate. It was always played at Fairgrounds when, it, when you were a kid. Yeah. But, um, and this, it, when I went, this so reminds me of running around the housing estate. So this is the crunch by the Rab Band. It's so gold frap. Quite strict machine, isn't it? Yeah. Go on, ya boy. Please, <laughs> if you want to go faster. <laughs> I have not heard this for years. And it's, again, it's a groove. You know, it, it just keeps yeah. going. It keeps it's got going. that stomp. Yeah. It's got that stomp. And then Heart of Glass by Blondie, obviously, was just. Oh. Another intros are really important in those days, weren't they? Yeah. But she was just. Oh, man. I'm away. I had a parallel lines. I was from 11 to 16. I was at a boarding school in Northern Ireland, the way up the country. And I had. Um, the Parallel Lines album, the poster above my bed on the roof, yeah. and the priest would just come in and rip them down. <laughs> that that off your walls, boy. But um, like she was just the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. You know, as a kid, you know that that sort of Judy Christie, um, Marilyn Monroe, um, Ellen Barkin. Those sort of those sort of edgy looking beautiful women you know um she was the coolest person on the planet yeah i just and also that thing that you know i didn't realize to do it she was so much older yeah so she had that she didn't have that sort of like um little girl lost thing there was she wasn't your age group she was an old she was that sort of you know that older sexy woman you know thing and the heart of glass that album really parallel lines really takes me back to being pubescent really and and you know they were great pop tunes great pop tunes hanging on the telephone oh. picture this you know um all of those ones were just fucking brilliant a brilliant band because it was that sort of there was that slight american um uh post-punk influence was coming in as well you know um that i was i, I got into you know i really liked you know like that sort of american um post-punk stuff I like that too you know and Blondie was great you know Um, so yeah Blondie uh, Heart of Glass and The Crunch uh, by the Rab Band I keep picking two you keep asking me I keep you can have honourable mentions mate it's okay you're you're welcome so uh, you said you went to a boarding school how how was that terrible 
hit it um, completely out of my depth, completely out of my uh, comfort zone. Made it, it was just, a, from my point of view, it was a massive mistake because it, it had repercussions for the rest of your life, really. You know, um, when you're 11, uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you should, I think, especially as a wee boy, I think you should be around your family. You should be around your peer group. You should be, you know, there's lots of journeys that you're going through, you know. You're hitting puberty, you know. You're, there's lots of stuff going on. And to be in a Catholic boys' boarding school 90 miles away from your mom and dad was, um, it just distances you from your family. So you're, you lose that intimacy. And there was a, there was a sense, the good stuff about it is it, it meant me, it made me independent. You know, I could, uh, I became quite singular, whether elected or not. There was always a, there was always a want to be part of, but an ability, a slight inability to stay part of. You're always going to be a lone wolf yeah. because nobody's going to come and save you. Because, you know, I went up there and I was a working class kid from a housing estate and they were all posh. It was a posh Catholic boys boarding school or they were middle class or they, their man and dad were aspirational, they had money. Um, so you spend a long time fighting, you know, have a lot of physical fights in the first year, you know. Uh, it was like being in prison, really, you know, you establish a reputation for yourself so they fucking leave you alone, you know. Um, and I'd come from this area uh, where I'm from. Um, there's three housing estates in a row, you know, Nakhnagani, Redburn, White City, and I'm from Redburn. And, you know, everybody was out on the streets, so there was random acts of violence or getting chased by gangs or all that was going on when I was a kid because it was the troubles, the war was on as well. So you go up, you go to this school with that attitude, you know, and they were slightly out of the loop in their world, you know. But as far as the education was concerned, it was just, you know, it was... Um, a lot of physical violence against the kids. You know, you got strapped a lot, you got caned a lot. There was a lot of spare the rod and spoil the child type thing. You know, there wasn't too much nurturing, you know. There wasn't many um, Yodas. There wasn't many priests or teachers going, do you know, I've noticed that you've got a real, you've got an inclination towards that. Maybe we should work on that together. It was literally, you know, we're just hammering square pegs into round holes. You, the, the aspiration was that you were going to leave and you're going to go to further education and university and you're going to become a solicitor or um, or whatever, you know, something, a doctor or whatever, you know. What did you and want to be at school? Huh? What did you want to be at school? Uh, away from school. Um, that's what I wanted to be. I didn't want... I. It's quite funny. I was out a couple of weeks ago seeing my older son. I've got um, two older children. Um, I've got a son who's 36 and a daughter who's 31. And... Um, we, I went to see him and his wife and uh, my daughter-in-law and my, and my grandson down at his place and he lives down um, sort of Car Shelton way and he's got a lovely new house and he's got a back garden and it's the, the person he bought it off had mature fruit trees and, and, and little sheds and he's loving it you know he's loving the suburban he's getting plants in and stuff and his kids love him running up and down and, and he down the sh- I said let's have a look at your shed because my dad always loved having a shed, you know. So I'm done, had a little shed, and he pulled out these two, um, or like a handful of books belonged to me from boarding school. He said, do you remember these? And one was a folder, and it had like XTC and The Clash and Punk, all done on Tipex on it, and Status Quo and Thin Lizzy and all this stuff. And I started looking through it, and I found this page 
and it said um, goodbye to all that. And I re- read it, and it's me, basically at 15 years of age, writing out my manifesto, basically saying, "I don't believe what you're teaching me. I don't believe in your system. I don't believe in you. So I'm just going to bide my time and go my own way." And that was me. It was goodbye to all that. I titled it, and it was me just freestyling, writing. This is how I feel as this wee boy in a room in a fucking school in the, up the countryside in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it really shocked me because I'd, I knew I had those feelings, but I didn't realise that I'd actually articulated them. Yeah. You know? And so I spent a long time after that sort of drifting. Not really, you know, uh, that classic, you know, uh, Marlon Brando thing, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? It was, it was quite that. I was that, yeah. really. I didn't... I didn't believe in adults, you know. I didn't believe in big people. I believed that they were a fucking gang, and um, you know they were always going to gang. They were always going to take their point of view. They were never going to ask you your point of view. Yeah. So my job was to fucking slip them at all times and try and get one over on them, like they're the wardens, you know. Yeah. Um, so I just had that attitude. So within leaving school at sixteen, went to college in Belfast, got chucked out of there. It was a proper hallion by that stage, and. Um, it wasn't long in, in London, you know. So that okay. was, so the boarding school was quite a profound time for me. Looking back, it sort of made me the man that I am, um, you know. But um, it could have been very hit and miss, you know. But I wouldn't send a child to boarding school. Yeah, it creates psychopaths actually. It creates yeah. sociopaths because, you know, if you look at this Tory government, a lot of them, you know, they went to prep boarding school. So your mother gives you away at seven years of age hands you over to the stranger who's going to, you know, panel beat you into being a pillar of the establishment and tell you that you're, you're part of the greater good, you know, and cold showers and all that stuff. And you go to these schools and you eventually go to colleges and then you become, you know, a Tory MP. And people wonder why the Tories have no empathy. It's because it was ripped away from them at seven years of age. Yeah. You know, they're created. They don't have any empathy for you. So why are you fucking asking for it? You know what I mean? Trying to get juice out of a wall for fuck's sake. <laughs> totally. <laughs> okay, well, before we, we pick up on you moving to London, let's just um, just stay back where we were for a moment. For track four, Michael, yeah. uh, the first song you remember buying from a record shop. Now, do you mean single or album? Well, do you know both? Yeah. Let's do both. My first single was Tiger Feet by Mud. Lovely. <laughs> Again, the stomp. You could hear the stomp and all yeah. that. Um, and the second one was uh, um, The Clash's first album. Um, so I, I, bought, I bought Tiger Feet by Mud in Woolworths in Hollywood, I think. And I bought The Clash in Caroline Music in Belfast, which is in the bottom of, it used to be at the bottom of Anne Street in Belfast, which is like a shopping street in the centre of Belfast. And I remember being so proud of that. I remember getting it home and my man and dad had this Grundig, um, you know, those old big uh, record players that were yeah. uh, radiograms, you know, had a big top on it. You lifted the top yeah. up and the record player was there and there was a radio attached to it. It was highly polished. I've not heard the word fucking Grundig for years. <laughs> yeah, Grundig. And, <laughs> <laughs> I said, can I put this on? And my dad going, I suppose. And she says, don't be putting on too loud. And I put on, and I put on White Riot 
by the Clash and cranked it up. And it was a Saturday evening just before my man put the fry out. So it was about six o'clock on the Saturday. I left the Belfast on the Saturday, come back down on the bus, put it on, cranked it up. And my dad, and I just loved the white ride. It was just dad, dad, but I'm a dad, 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 dad. And my dad just looking at me and going, that's not even music, that's just bloody noise. <laughs> and that was it, I was in love. I was in that's love. what you want your parents to say, isn't it? Yeah. And then, <laughs> you know, I haven't seen Quadrophenia like fucking 20 odd times. You know, there's the bit when Jimmy's watching The Who on, um, on the TV and he's sitting in his wet jeans, his wet Levi's, and in comes Michael Elphick, God rest his soul. Comes in and what's that? He says it's the who or whatever. He goes, that's not music. That's just noise. I just thought, yeah. that's it. Yeah. I'm in. I'm in. I'm, you know, I've hit little the, that box ticking that fucking millennials do now. That was the box I ticked. You know, was that was that film? It was for me, but, but was was Quadrophenia a film like in where I grew up? It was a rite of passage. You know, you yeah. watched Quadrophenia to death. It was it was the film that you know you, you had to watch. Well, also, for me, it wasn't like, it was massive for me. It wasn't necessarily massive in my area, you know. Um, but it was massive for me. I thought it was, it was my little private Idaho, you know what I mean? It was my little, um, I would go up, there was a, up in Belfast near me, in East Belfast, there was a, a fantastic Art Deco um, cinema called The Strand. Absolutely beautiful, still there, and it's been renovated. And you'd go there. There was an up Hollywood had its um, its own little flea pit cinema, but it wasn't. I don't even know if it was going by there. It was. It, I think it might have closed by then. But anyway, I went up the Strand, and it was on on a triple bill, right? And it was on for like a month with um, scum and scrubbers. Oh wow! And I would go up and watch on loop, you know. And it was like. You know, all these young, mad, Londoner, um, Cockney actors I fell in love with. You know, Phil Daniels, Ray Winston, Kathy Burke. You know, they, to me, you know, Phil Davis, they're, they're, they were just the nuts. I just thought they were amazing, you know. Um, and it wasn't that, they, you know, because I'm, I'm Irish. You know, I don't have any real connection to these people. But what it was was that their attitude and their wit, and that energy, that joie de vivre, that they, they brought to everything, that, that working class sort of fucking edginess that was so attractive, you know. Uh, so one of the biggest privileges of my life is ending up working with them people, you know. To work with Ray Winston on Jawbone was just, yeah. you know, just to be spending night after night, like we, we shot up in Stoke, and we... Um, all the boxing scenes were shot in a, we'd made our own gym up in Stoke and we were staying in this hotel and there was four of us staying in this hotel, uh, Johnny Harris, Ray Winston, Barry McGuigan, me, right? And Johnny, because he was staying trim for the boxing. I've had Johnny on here. He's a wonderful, wonderful fella. Yeah, he's beautiful, isn't he? So he used to have to go up to his room with a box of fucking spinach, right? Every night and do press-ups. Whereas... <laughs> Barry was the boxing, you know, um, coordinator. Ray was the owner of the gym, and I was the trainer. So we're like me and Ray are supposed to be, you know, men of our age. Yeah, you know, eating and drinking uh, heartily, you know. So we would sit and have steak dinner every night in the corner of this hotel, and I would have Ray Winston and Barry McGuigan in front of us, 
and we'd just spend hours talking and I could ask questions and they would fucking, we'd go into all these worries. It was, every time I looked at him, it just took me back to the 16-year-old me sitting watching him in Quadrophenia, watching him in Scum, you know. Aside from that, though, I mean, how amazing was it to, to, to be, you know, in a room with, with, with Barry McGuigan? Because, yeah. you know, throughout the 80s, you know, was was aside from being, you know, one of the greatest boxers in his weight class, you know, in the world, you know, what an iconic Irishman that, you know, like how, how amazing was that to sit and, and, and talk to Barry? Yeah, it was incredible. Barry McGuigan, like I remember, I wasn't in London long when the, the Pedroza fight oh. at KPR's ground and I was living in West London at the time. We were living in um, uh, Portobello Road area at the time. I'd go on down to try and get tickets and black tickets. It just, there was no way. And, and we ended up like standing in the middle of Shepherd's Bush Green because it was the crowds. The, Ireland was just, everybody from Ireland was there that night, you know. Uh, Kilburn must have fucking just, must have been a dust bowl. Um, yeah. But you know, he is he, he's iconic to the point of godlike to a lot of that. Uh, um, men of a certain, men and women of a certain age in, in Ireland because he bridged that gap. You know, there's a um, there's a politician that died yesterday, John Hume. That's right. Uh, he is had a massive influence on me growing up. He was the most consistent peacemaker, and he brought the peace to Northern Ireland. He was instrumental in that. Heartbroken to hear he's died. He's, he's an old man. He's, you know, his time had come and he was suffering. But his legacy is the same as as you know Barry. It's not the same, but Barry McGuigan was part of that in the sense of he was a boxer. He was a boxer. He wasn't a Catholic boxer. He was, you know, he wasn't a Protestant boxer. He was a boxer, you know. And, you know, that was, you know, for his father to get up and sing Danny Boy. Danny Boy, yeah. Well, that was really important because the reason his dad sang Danny Boy so that there wouldn't be a national anthem, you know, so there wasn't going to be an Irish national anthem or a British national anthem being sung before the box. It was going to be his dad singing Danny Boy. So I took the whole... um, sectarian thing out of it, you know. And, you know, I Barry's an amazing man, incredibly erudite, and, you know, I loved being with him. You, you know, he's become a friend, and I'm, I'm really proud of that, you know. Did, did job on with Johnny. You know, Johnny's one of my best mates and one of my heroes at the same time, you know. I think he's a great actor. I think he's a man of such integrity. I think he's fucking hilarious. He's got such humility. He's strong. He's got lots of characteristics that are, you know you could you would aspire to as a young man to you know he's got those a value system that you would go yeah that's it you know um, but also with that come Ian McShane and Paul Weller and, and Barry McGuigan and Ray Winston you know what I mean I'm standing around with fucking Colossus <laughs> you know and, that's quite a squad isn't it isn't it. I just stand around having the fucking crack with them. You just go, all right, okay then. Brilliant. For track five, Michael, I want to ask you the song that soundtrack your years clubbing. Oh man, I couldn't just give you one of them. You can't ask me for just one now. Okay, okay. Um, So, because they've all got, you know, every fucking back. I could give you, you know, I get into clubbing. It just changed my life. I was a bike messenger. Um, we went, I remember going to do a couple of uh, big big raves, you know, N25 raves. And then these other raves used to be in, um, like, Love Dove Dance and all the Love Dove raves, you know, that were um, in sort of 
sports halls in Finsbury Park and places like that, you know what I mean? The Sobel Centre, I remember going to a massive rave in the Sobel Centre. And just loving that sort of, fuck, you know? And I'd been going to, I'd been going to Glastonbury for years, so it wasn't that. It was just this, you know, it was repetitive beats in MDMA and, and, you know, making friends with strangers and sitting in back rooms. And, you know, I formed my stand-up career pretty much in the back rooms and chill-out rooms of clubs, making ravers laugh, making these strangers laugh. And people go, why aren't you doing that? You should be doing that on stage. So out of, you know, all that back room of clubs, which is completely revolutionary, you know, people sat around and, you know, chilling, for want of a better expression. And, and and out of that came, you know, boy, uh, junior boy zone and boy zone and, you know, all of these and uh, fashion labels and stuff like that, you know, all came out of the back room of clubs, you know. So, you know, no wonder it was vilified by the press and by the government because it was the most revolutionary act. People were getting together, loving each other and helping each other and being empathetic to each, towards each other. That's, that's the start of revolution, that, you know. We've got to separate them people. You know, we can't have them coming. We can't have the proletariat coming together for fuck's sake. That's revolutionary, you know. Mm. So amongst that was was this music. And, you know, I think when it, I tried to be as quick as possible, the answer as quick as possible off the top of my head. So like French Kiss by Lil Louie was oh, a, a big one. Um, Gap Decor by uh, Passion by Gap Decor was another big one. And... And also just, again, intros, you know, you're walking through a room and then a tune because I go, fuck! And you start, just run, stop talking, sorry, and go, you know. Uh, Where Love Lives by Alison Limerick is, yeah. was another one as well. Just those sort of ones that make you tingle. Because I was, I was, I loved, I wasn't really in the aggressive house. I wasn't really in the, you know, a room full of blokes. You know what I mean? I loved it when the women were on the dance floor. You know, if, if there's lots of women on the dance floor, there was a good chance there wasn't going to be any trouble. To, you know, yeah. it uh, the blokes are going to behave themselves. Uh, uh, that where love lives was just, you know, that's just hands in the air stuff. Yeah. But the opening bang of uh, French Kiss but, and Passion by Gat Deco. So I'd probably go historically, uh, French Kiss, Passion, where love lives. That would be the the ones, you know. Um, they were massive for me, you know. It's, it's quite weird because French Kiss, like, I don't know what the BPM is, but it's, it's, it's it's got that stomp, I guess. Yeah. Like, but it's it's quite slow, isn't it? It's like hmm. it's. Uh... Let's 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 hear it, shall we? Let's do it. French kiss. So. <laughs> oh, I'm already there. <laughs> So good. And also, passion's not far off, but it is the passion. So good. Isn't that brilliant? I'm glad you fast-forwarded to the, uh, the that track and, and didn't leave French Kiss playing because I couldn't sit on a Zoom call looking at you, Michael, whilst there's some woman climaxing on a record for 20 yeah, minutes. Yeah, I love. <laughs> keep looking at me. 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 <laughs> 
Doesn't matter what I'm wearing. Just keep looking in the eyes. <laughs> Stop crying. Stop crying. <laughs> Stop crying. I'll come to you quick. <laughs> but yeah, French, those two, those, that rolling beat, you know, they're just rolls. And it's a bit like, you know, um, when somebody, you're being funny and then you keep going and it's yeah. not funny anymore. And then it comes back to being the funniest thing in the world ever. Yeah, and it's like that with the, with house music for me. That rule and sort of keeps going, and going. It's not going to change. Oh no, fact, yeah. I like it. Well, like you know, that dumb factor. You know, it, it yeah. just keeps going. It just keeps going. It just and it elevates you. And it, you know, there's something cr- incredibly primal about that for me. You know, I'm sure that went to number one as well. What, uh, Louis? Yeah, yeah, I'd say right, so. Uh, but definitely number one of dance charts, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that was a, 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 a you know, a, a proper chart number one. And that's crazy that, you know, and I think at that point, you know, and you, you mentioned the M25 raves and stuff, you know, it, it was at that point, I think, you know, the government obviously just thought, right, hang on, we, we need to stop this. And, yeah, I think, uh, was, I think a criminal justice bill was, I remember that coming through. I was, um, I was a, a roving reporter on a program called Naked City. And we, I was given my five minute slot, and so I could do whatever I want with it. And we did the criminal justice bill, and and it was a big march down and Hyde Park to Chicago right. Square, and we filmed that and interviewed people. And what, you know, politically speaking, it wasn't the fact that fucking Harry Grebos were um, were dancing on fucking good taxpayers' land. It was nothing to do with that. It was got to do with the fact that people were coming together and people were um, saying, this is our value system. This is the way we think we should be living our lives. This is what we're doing. And it's dancing and it's, you know, it's being being kind to each other, being empathetic to each other. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is, or your, your background, your financial background. It's about this, you know, and that's, you know, I keep saying for, for political parties, especially the right wing, that's quite frightening, you know, because yeah, you're, you're you're not taxable, you're not corralable, you know. Yeah. And so, look what come out of it: yeah. super clubs, like yeah. so taxable. Well, yeah, so taxable. You're all in one place. We can corral them off. We've got security. We can film it. We, can, you know, there's a lot to be made from. A lot of people didn't complain because, you know, they were making money off the back of it. You know, Danny Ramplin wasn't crying too much about it. You know, about the criminal justice bill. That's nothing against them, but if you're being offered a chance to go from being a DJ in a sweaty club to 500 people to play in a super club, where you're getting a fucking helicopter on New Year's Eve. Yeah, you know, you're not going to be banging the drum for fucking um, socialist re- revolution. You know, totally. So what, that's what you do. You just get the leaders and make them rich. <laughs> yeah, and then it just cuts the head off the snake. Completely, completely. Favorite song from an artist from your home county. Oh, it's fucking well. Van Morrison's from three miles up the road from me. Amazing. He he lives in my hometown, you know. So it's fine. You met him? Have you met him? Yeah, a couple of times. A couple of times. It, is, I, is he is he the, the is he the grump that he's made out to be? Well, you know, I think yes. It's a short answer. <laughs> right. That's <laughs> but, um, the answer I it. But also, I think you know. Listen, Van Morrison sees himself as a, seen himself as an artist. Didn't think he was going to be so iconic. 
I'm sure, and did you know think that he was going to be fucking Mick Jagger and was going to be trailed around and every like Bob Dylan, every one of his words fucking dissected and and put in front of him. You know, it's not you know for Grump to see somebody who's quite soci- socially inarticulate. You know, he's not really he's quite shy, he's quite private. You know, he's got that Northern Irish, you know, short fuse. You know, we don't suffer fools gladly. You know, it's, after a while you go, why don't you fuck off, big lad? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? We want, we want to bring it to conclusion pretty quickly, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're, you know, and, and, you know, I'm sure he's, fuck, I'd hate to have been Van Morrison, you know? I'd hate to have had that level of adulation and yeah. it looked like a fucking bookies runner, you know? To have that beauty and to be a wee stumpy, baldy man from East Belfast that had to create that amount of beauty. He wants yeah. just to be left alone, doesn't he? You know, but for me, it's Astro Weeks. The, you know, the the albums that introduced me to uh, Van Morrison was um, Moondance and then Astro Weeks. You know, Astro Weeks obviously was before Moondance. But, um, you know, when I was growing up in the housing estate, there was the... Uh, you know, um, I always pay tribute to them. There was the gang of cool, cool kids. You know, so you had your, you had your nutty fucking sectarian boys, and you had the unpredictable ones, and you had the head balls, and your mates who just wanted to play football or go up the woods. And then there was these guys that had converted their dad's garages because it'd be like collective garages around the back. You know what I mean? And these garage bands, they would set up the little bands and um, drink cider and smoke shit hash and learn. Van Morrison and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and um, Steely Dan tracks, you know, and try and form wee bands and wee collectives. And, you know, Bo and Dickie and Les and Wilfie and um, all the boys, you know, and um, and Min. They were all like the cool, I was a Catholic in a Protestant area, you know, and they were the cool prods. You know, we'd go and hang out with them, and we were all right, Michael, man, how you doing? And they would just play, Have you heard this? And they would give you a, I was this kid that was given, getting an education off them, really, you know. And uh, so, Moondance by Van Morrison is is the soundtrack of that coming of age stuff. But the actual song, Astro Weeks, is, um, is the one that just blows my mind to think that he was so, so young and come out with a, a song like that and an album like that. It's genius, absolute genius. It's my favourite album of all time, uh, that album. I I think it's it's just perfection. I'm not a huge fan of of a lot of the stuff that come after that, but but that album, I think, is an absolute... Recorded, I'm sure it was recorded in like three days. Yeah, he knew exactly what he wanted, didn't he? Just unreal. There's a period that those sort of first four or five albums were amazing like um it sort of culminated in um that live album have you heard that live album his too late yeah. to stop now so it was all the caledonian soul orchestra stuff that then you know texas midnight runners revisited years later mm. you know that sort of um uh, brass section and if you go online you can on youtube you can see lots of him from um on tour in, in Germany in like 73, 74, around that time, where he's playing all that stuff, St. Dominic's Preview and all that right the way through. Um, and it's just gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. And, to, you know, my heroes growing up were all from around that area. Van Morrison, George Best, Alex Higgins. You know, they were, they were big, you know, big heroes of mine. And they were all quite similar in the way of, you know, went their own way, you know, and... You know, Higgins and Van Morrison were 
you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to say the wrong word to them at the wrong time. Right. George Best was a bit less like that, maybe got a bit more like that towards the end of his alcoholism, you know. Yeah, but that wasn't really him. He was more of a, he was more shy than that, you know. But yeah, genius. You know, the word as everybody says, the word genius is bandied around a lot. But fucking Van Morrison was one of the, the geniuses of my life, really. You know, okay. so Astro Weeks, Astro Weeks, that that's the, that's the tune for me. Perfect. So last track. Michael, it's your chance to, to play DJ and uh, right. and turn someone onto something they might not have heard. So it's the song that many may not know that you would like yeah. them to hear. Okay. Here's one for you. You probably don't even know it. Rich Wilson will know because I, I put it on a compilation for him. I have a DJ compilation. I always put this on. So it's by a guy called Tim Lovely. Tim and then Love and Vertical is Lee. Um, I, think he's in, uh, I think he's in New York now. And he's... Uh, I got this years ago. I used to get, um, I met uh, Tony Crane and Dylan White and people like that who were um, part of Go Beat and um, Anglo Plugin. And they used to give me white labels and they used to give me just tunes because I used to run my own little club. And so I would just get, I'd be on their mailing list and I would just get these tunes come through. And this came through on a CD, never heard of it, played it. And I didn't know where it come from. I didn't know where the samples came from. And uh, it's actually sampled from a Steve Miller band um, track. And it's called the South End Rock Remix by Tim Lovely, right? So it's even down your Straza, yeah. So here you go. See if you, you won't know this, but it's fucking brilliant. this is it a tune or what though yeah when did it come out oh uh, twenty years ago yeah I've, I've dropped this in clubs man it brings so you back you, up again so was you a club promoter no I used to DJ so um, what had happened was that I started going clubbing and I was a bike messenger and then I got that thing of Jesus well, love my own little venue and where the, the the top of Charlotte Street becomes Fitzroy Street right underneath the British Telecom Tower so in the so this must have been like the early 90s there was a lot of the pubs were dying in central London and I don't know it was just that part of that slump you know and around there there was if you, especially if you've got Charlotte Street, a lot of those little Spanish bar or Spanish restaurants and stuff like that, they've got amazing cellars. So they're like stone archways, little basements, which was good for you know, keeping your wine, but it's also part of that area shelter thing. So a lot of yeah. people were down there during the war. Um, like at Fitzroy Arms, the big bar, the big pub, that, that has amazing cellars. So all the that area, Fitzrovia, was where the... Um, you know, like the writers would go. So you're, the writers, publishers would be in Bloomsbury across the road. And they would go to Fitzroy and Soho to drink and, and uh, associate. And those bars would drink drinking because 
during an air raid. They would just go down into the basement. And I discovered this. There was a place called the pub called the Prince of Monolulu that was um, named after this African um, uh, tipster. He used to go around in full African dress, um, shouting out, got a horse um, around racetracks, selling tips. And it was owned by this Highland Irish guy. And for some reason, I'd wait in there for a pint one night, and I went down into the basement and find this stone cellar with its own bar, DJ booth area, and these little sort of tunnels, you know. And you, once you close the door downstairs and close the door upstairs, you couldn't hear a fucking thing. So I sweet-talked him and got it for like 30 quid for the night. And he... He would sit upstairs drinking with his cronies. So the cops would go past and would just see it's your man and leave him. And we'd be downstairs. There'd be about 30 or 40 of us downstairs. And I would hire equipment, DJ equipment, and say, get blag records off my mates who were uh, pluggers like Dylan White and, and Tony Crean and people like that. And they would give me tunes and I'd go out and buy tunes. And we would have, we'd invite friends. So all the ones that worked at the courier company and all friends of friends would come and We'd go around at the end of the night. We'd go around with a bucket and people would put money in to pay for the hire. Then we'd lock everything up and we'd go out clubbing in the West End. And so we'd we'd, we'd be there till about two in the morning. We used to call it pit stop. So it was that sort of pre-club, years before yeah. the pre-club thing. So you'd go down there, the party would start about nine, finish about two, and then we'd head off to the Cross or to Bagley's or to... You know, the the mud club or down into the West End and go to Africa Centre and places like that, you know, turnmills and all that malarkey. But we go like mob handed. So in those days I used to go mob handed down to Stearns and the you know, the Camber it would be that crew. Yeah. You know, we'd finish the tune and we'd go, fuck it, there's an all nighter down the south coast, jump in vans and drive down, you know. So um I, I got the buzz for that and that then people had got me on decks. My land, the landlord of the early Lonsdale in Portobello, which is my local, he bought, I used to, he said, why don't you do like a Saturday night for me? I said, I've got to hire the equipment. He said, well, I'll buy it on eBay. So he bought it. It wasn't on eBay in those days. It was on something else. It was on Auto Trader or one of those trade magazines. You know? And he bought a set of decks. This DJ was, radio DJ was going digital. So he had, uh, two Technics 1210s and a mixer and all this equipment and Mick bought it and then I DJed for him for free for two months and that pay, I, and he gave me the, the gear and that's where I started my stand-up I started my, my show there my, my, uh, my own club so I sort of I got to that point where I had to make a decision whether it was going to be a club DJ or a stand-up comedian that was my fork in the road and I went stand-up comedian so I've always had to make those choices somewhere down the line yeah so that's that's where my uh, little love affair with being a club promoter. It was more like setting up a party for my mates, you know. When yeah, they would have moved when Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and I uh, lived together in Kentish Town. It was a rickety house that we lived in Kentish Town, and I'd done exactly the same thing. We'd have a party and go and hire the equipment, go and hire the amps and the speakers, and I already had the decks and I had the tunes, and we just get people in, you know. Mighty Bush boys would come and, you know, Jessica, Jessica Stevenson would come and just all our mates, all the Emmons would come and we'd just fill the house full of people and have a party like once a month. And banging. Wonderful. So as we find ourselves hopefully seeing the light at the end of the tunnel of this lockdown um, stuff that we've been uh, experiencing, what 
what's coming up for you as we we uh, we, we come out of this, Michael? Um, to be honest, I don't know. Um, I've been there's a series called Temple uh, that was uh, Mark Strong and um, That's great, yeah. Um, so Danny and uh, Danny Mays as well. Um, so I've been offered a couple of episodes of that. So that's exciting. So that's giving me sort of like, oh, they still got that. And there's a um, there was this a thing called the Silent Twins that was going to go before lockdown, and they're trying to get it back up again, which is a, a low, lowish budget film about this um, these two twins who who stopped talking and ended up in Broadmoor. It's a true story um, in the seventies. So that. And my own film and my own play. I'm trying to get. Uh, I've got a producer, and I'm trying to get more funding and try and get that up and running and try and get that made. You know? So, um, if I think if I said that loud, there's there's plenty going on. But if yeah. I don't say that loud, I feel like there's nothing going on. But nothing's happened. You know what I mean? There's nothing. There's everything to play for, but nothing's happened. Mm. Well. All of the songs that you've mentioned, and we, we, we'll stick on a Spotify playlist to accompany this podcast uh, right. when it comes out. And I really appreciate your time. I've had a blast today, mate. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to press stop now. Thanks, Michael. There you go. Michael Smiley, what an absolute gent. We carried on having a really good natter uh, when I pressed stop. And yeah, what an absolute top fella. Um I hope you got as much enjoyment um, listening to that as I did um, recording it. Uh, it was uh, it was great fun doing that. Um, I'm back next week. As mentioned um, at the beginning, if you enjoyed this, then go and have a, a rummage in the archives because there's over 100 episodes now, or uh, well, probably 150 episodes now with um, so many great guests. So go and have a, a look over there. Uh, you can find out about everything off the Beat and Track podcast. Dot com. So thanks again uh, for listening. Thanks again to, to Michael for giving up his time to uh, to record that. And I'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast. And it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a lot of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, um, there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month, there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com It's off the Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments. Not minutes, like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.